Good morning, everyone. I actually have a couple readings today, and I'll uh, start with our gospel passage for today. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Gospel of the Lord. Now, before I do this uh, next reading, I did just want to share how excited I am to be up here today doing this. Uh, for me, Pentecost is, um, well, it is one of the most important holidays in the church year. I think about Pentecost and how the Spirit spread and how ultimately we all have a connection back to that day that would not have been there without the Spirit descending. Think of it, if you will, as uh, some combination of family genealogy and six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, and that's how, how we all get back to Pentecost, ultimately. So, a reading from the Acts of the Apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest upon each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, 
Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily to those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much for that beautiful reading of sacred scripture, Ben. So for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm going to unpack some of this passage. It is so ridiculously and incredibly deep that we can only start to scratch the surface of it here. But I want to at least leave you with a sense of, of some of the depths of what the Holy Spirit was and is doing through the celebration of Pentecost and it can be summed up to a lot of my meditations on this passage of John that Ben just read for us and chapter 2 of Acts can be summed up in this slightly strange phrase, living is belonging through change. And I'm going to expand on that a little bit, and then I'm going to expand on Acts 2 and John 7 here a little bit. And then at the end, I think we can encounter this language in a somewhat different way that might crack open our hearts for the Holy Spirit to do new things in us too. So, living. And this is what uh, the word here is, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. So we've been celebrating baptisms. We had three baptisms in this period between Passover or Easter and Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And this is what baptism is pointing towards, is becoming a people and individual people who are somehow streams of life-giving water. And so baptism celebrates and honors and invites us into being river people. And the word living here has a beautiful semantic range. It's where our word zoo comes from. And so you could say, you shall flow full rivers of zoo water. 
if we were really messing around with the etymology. But <laughs> that would be very confusing. But you think of, of being alive rather than dead. And when you apply it to water, it just means flowing water in a basic sense, right, that it's flowing. But there's this classic problem whenever you think about a river, which is like, what is it? Like, what is it really? It's uh, the water that's in it is just flowing through and coming and going. But the river is somehow a pattern, some kind of a, a thing that is, uh, you can use a fancy word, supervening. Somehow it's continuing to structure this flow of stuff that's going through it. But it isn't just the stuff. It's like a special kind of shape in the world that attracts and draws this kind of thing into it. And, and so living contrasts with dead, right? And so dead water is just, it's not moving. And so it's not changing. So belonging to a river means belonging through change. Does that make sense? If you belong to something that's living, if you belong through in two senses. One is that even through the changes that happen, you still belong. And it also means that actually it is through change itself that things like rivers, things like rivers have their belongingness. Does that make sense? So there's multiple senses here. Now the word living too has this beautiful range of meaning. And it, it gets drawn out a little bit in Acts 2 here where there's talking about, uh, David talks about the way of life, right? God shows us the way of life, the path to walk on that is the path of life. And that resonance is all there in the background languages here, too. So we, when we say living, we talk about making a living or having a living or our way of life and, and our order of life together, how I live myself. Uh, and so it raises these questions, too, not only of am I alive or dead, but how am I living with myself? What is my way of life in my innermost being? How do I treat myself? What is my way of life with the people around me? What is our way of life? What are our patterns? What are our rhythms? What do we do in the morning? How do we show love to our kids and our families and our parents? What is our way of life together as a family? It invites us to think about our way of life together as a church, as a congregation here, and as a crazy messed up family of two billion people around the world who all celebrate what Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father initiated here in Pentecost, which is the birth of the church. That's, a, that's the way of life. We're some kind of, this, this, we're some kind of crazy giant superorganism in some weird way. And that's living too. And that's really at the heart of this language too. So living at whatever scale you want to think about, whatever passport you carry, how much, regardless too of how much you feel like you belong to the church in whatever sense, it involves belonging through change. And that's part of what it means then to be living water. There's also a really cool thing in Acts 2. I'm going to get into this a little bit more. I'm going to read through it at the end and, and draw out some things. But for people across the ancient Near East and Rome and Greece and things like that, they really did think about the four video game elements, right? Like earth, fire, water, and wind. <laughs> they, they really, like, it's, it's very enduring. But they really uh, understood the world through that. And so if I think about my own living, my own life inside of me, they're, like, I definitely need water flowing through me. And they didn't know that it was H2O, but they knew you needed water flowing through you to, to be living, right? Uh, I need clay or something. I need carbon molecules, as we would say now, right? But we need something of the earth to get mixed in to make us into a whole soul. We need breath. That's the one that'll kill you the fastest, actually. We're not going to try that today, but you can trust me on that one. Uh, and then... Uh, 
and then fire. And we now know, and so part of the reason people would infer that you need fire in you for life, you need fire in your belly, is people already then could feel that there's warmth there. And we now know the, 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 the reactions that happen, largely in your belly, that uh, do that are actually super slow motion combustion. There's a real sense in which there's fire in you. And so we're, I want to lend credibility even to this sort of ancient way of poetically, to our ears, talking about this, that they're actually talking about reality too. That somehow our lives are some kind of belonging through change of whatever they were thinking about through those elements. Now, I would add too, some people tried to get down to the nitty gritty on like what the elements are, and there was the idea of atomism, that there's like little tiny fire molecules and little tiny earth molecules, and that that's like the core of everything. And, and I have, uh, for those who think that everything is just little bits bouncing around, this has been uh, an idea that's been around since then. And fortunately, as of last year, the Nobel Prize was awarded for basically demonstrating as thoroughly as could possibly be demonstrated that whatever reality we're inside of is not little things bouncing around. That, that cannot explain the smallest scale quantum realities that physicists are aware of. There is weird, wibbly-wobbly, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, not local stuff happening in our universe, which makes room, I think, especially for us as contemporary people, as people who love and respect science, which I do, to make room in our hearts and our minds to believe that God can somehow be moving in this mix of things that is, that is our strange and mysterious and fundamentally non-local reality that's not just a bunch of little earth bits bouncing around. So I want to open up this passage. And for me, when I read a passage, one thing that I like to do is figure out which verses are the most off-putting and frustrating to me and then really meditate on those. I like to move towards pain, which is part of why I think I have a pastoral calling. And, and for me, these, uh, the verse that is a big pain point that is enormously rich to dig into uh, is Acts 2, verse 20. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And I want to unpack this in its cultural context. And we really need to do this because part of what's happening in this account is mostly Jewish people, as well as proselytes, so God-fearers, people who are attracted to Judaism, who are spread out across all of these cultural areas, in part through the Babylonian exile, where about 600 years before they had been violently scattered, in part through Assyrian conquests, perhaps, uh, and through other migrations. This was a people who were scattered and didn't necessarily even all know Hebrew. A lot of them probably didn't. Uh, uh, Aramaic would have been one of the main lingua francas. But people debate even today how much Aramaic Jesus spoke or how much Greek he might have even known. And so part of the complexity here, too, is not only linguistic. When you think about translation, part of what makes translation really, 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 really hard is that there's no one-to-one -one correspondence between words, right? You, you'll find words that have different resonances, different tones, different sorts of implications, and you say, well, this is like kind of the best fit, but I'm carrying a whole world of memories and a, and a whole community of memories in this word, and I can't, I can't cross that boundary. And so I want to dig into some of the world of the meaning that is being synthesized here in just 
really a profound way if we dig into it. So the sun. So in Hebrew and in Aramaic, the underlying word is something like shemesh. Shemesh. And this is such an interesting word for the sun because it's also, now we're talking about Parthians and Medes, who are people who are from Persia and that area. They're the, they're the inheritors of what was the Babylonian Empire, basically. And the Code of Hammurabi is one of these, is the earliest sort of known giant text of law. And what is on the Code of Hammurabi is the king, Hammurabi, receiving the law from who? Uh, you, extra Pentecost bonus points if anybody has a uh, Holy Spirit outburst where they know the name of this or just can guess. Do you know who they might have been receiving it from? I'm doing, I'm using my kids' ministry skills. That's, that's okay, you're about to, what is it? Doug. <laughs> it was, uh, actually it might have been Dogon. No, it was not. Um, it was Shamash. It was sun. It was the sun god. Shamash. And so, so get this picture in your mind. Here's the king setting out this law code, and, but his legitimation for the law code comes from it being handed to him by Shamash. And then he's standing on top of it. And so I love this image too, and this was a, a standard kind of idea. People came to recognize this across the ancient Near East. So you've got a god and a king somehow connected. The king's legitimacy comes from the god. And then you've got these covenants or agreements or law codes underneath their feet. And this concept would be familiar to any ancient Hebrew person because there were, um, there was a thing called an ark that had covenants inside of it. And then on top of that, in a lot of other contexts, outside of the Jewish context, there would be an idol sitting on top of that. It might be Shamash. Or as, as had happened once, uh, Shamash having been removed, people put a solar disk there in Shamash's place for a while until they could get their statue back. And so this is how you make laws, form a society, form a group agent, meaning like a government or something like that in the ancient world. You use this imagery. But what's remarkable, and so sometimes people will, you know, be denigrating uh, ancient Judaism or Christianity, which has owes so much to it. And they'll say, I don't believe in a God that gets carried around in a box. That was stupid. They thought God fit in a box. And uh, that's actually just a misunderstanding of the context. Actually, the covenants go in the box, and the God is removed, the statue, because God can't be depicted in that way. And their God is not the sun or a representation of the sun, but their God and our God is the God who is above the sun and who even makes that. It's helpful to, so the sun God imagery forms, uh, it's, it's all across the ancient Near East in all of these different language groups. So if we continue on to um, uh, Egypt, for example, we're probably more familiar with this. Like sort of Amun-Re is the ancient Egyptian sun and wind god who is located at the temple of Karnak. So the Egyptians also have this idea of you have this sun deity who forms covenants with people or makes agreements with people, and that's how you form a government. So sun imagery is connected to governance in Egypt too. And part of what goes on there is you think about trying to point at, the, at what legitimates your authority. And somebody might say, well, I own this hill and the god of this hill is what legitimates me. And then you want to point higher than that. You say, no, my God's not the God of this hill. My God's way above that. My God's the sun. 
And this happens for thousands of years, basically people saying this, and then what do they do while they're saying this? Well, at Karnak and in Babylon, part of what shows that this sun god that they're appealing to uh, is legitimating them is that they build a really big army and they crush everybody around them, and then they say, see, I've got the sun on my side. <laughs> That's the idea. And this is a known language. It's been going on for thousands of years at this point. Um, and so in that context, and I, I can uh, continue. So Apollo, Apollo comes into it for, for a lot of reference here in the book of Acts. So for Apollo, Apollo was also a sun deity who, like these other deities, was closely associated then with the Greek nation. And Apollo was also associated with healing and prophecy. Uh, if you look towards the end of Acts, in Acts 16, um, there's a reference to the cult of Apollo where this is how it would work. Someone would then, receiving sort of wisdom and insight and prophecy from the sun god, a woman would, would babble. She would speak in something that didn't make any sense, okay? And then a man, a priest of Apollo next to her, would explain the nonsense that she was saying, and that would be an oracle. So this would be like the oracle of Delphi. And the underlying word there for the spirit that would basically possess the woman and make her say this stuff was python. And that's also the word that's used in act. So the Apollo cult is being referenced here too. And the same idea. Our God is more, bigger, deeper. He's doing some deeper work than all of that. And I have a beautiful note about Apollo that I want to share, which is that this is part of where we start to see the distinction. This is from um, uh, the Anchor Yale commentary on this. After it talks about the cult of Apollo and how it raises this, it says, in one most vital respect, there was an unbridgeable gulf between Apollo and Jesus Christ. And I would add between Apollo and what the Holy Spirit was doing here. Apollo, in all his purity, he's a healing god, he shoots arrow, sun, sun arrow stuff, he can cause plague by removing healing, he's a wisdom god, he's, he's the Greek nation embodied in a certain sense. But Apollo, in all his purity, remains at a distance from humanity. No devotee of his would ever have said, I live in Apollo, and Apollo lives in me. Apollo had no defense against Paul's oracle in Galatians 2.20, or in 2 Corinthians 13.4, which was, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we shall live with him by the power of God. And so when you have that context, all of that governance context, and so there's a, a Romans too, right? So this mentions there's Romans here, and they're under the Roman Empire at this point. They're in the Greek-speaking part of it, but ultimately the Latin-speaking Romans are in charge. The Romans had a temple where there's a sun god and a moon god or goddess, I'm not sure which, where oaths were sworn. Once you were like a made man in the Roman system, like a real wise guy, you would go into one of these temples and you would be, um, you would get to swear an oath to the sun god. So sun gods, even in the Roman context, are, it's the same thing. So the other image that runs across all of these contexts is the sun god sheds light and sees everything. And so you swear oaths under them. So they're closely connected to oaths and justice and then, and maybe sort of this fake justice for those who understood the fake justice of these empires. And they were associated with then putting other smaller gods under their feet and conquering them through violence. They were the, 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 one of the most common symbols of empire. 
And I would just add that uh, Constantine, before he became Christian, was very devoted to Apollo. We have inscriptions showing his devotion to Apollo because it makes sense if you're an emperor in this context. That's the sort of thing you do. And then something happened where he turned to a different kind of light. And that's a really complicated story, but I am ultimately grateful for Constantine's transformation and generosity to the church, even as he also, I think, invited us into a lot of corruption and error. Because we lost the core thing that Anchor Yale was saying there, too, that, um, that Jesus isn't like that. This is a different kind of government. So they're taking up all of the language of ancient governance, and they're saying, yeah, we, we are doing that, except it's totally different. And how is it different? It's rooted in the covenant on the mount, which we've just were studying. It's rooted in loving enemies instead of hating them and crushing them. It's rooted in caring for the poor, living in solidarity with the poor, which we see fulfilled in acts as people do that. It's rooted in the work of reconciliation, where we, trusting that God loves and forgives us already, are moved by God's kindness to repentance and become a community of people who are really, really good at apologizing over and over again, as many times as it takes, as we learn and grow together. And that's different. That's fundamentally different than the way all of these systems that people were enmeshed in worked. And it's different than the way the church sometimes works. And it's different than the way our society works a lot of the time, too. But it's where life breaks in and gives us that deeper belonging through, through change. So, all right, bonus round. Here's a question. Just to illustrate in a little more detail how Shamash, as the sort of most linguistically close to the Hebrew sun god was, I have an ancient Babylonian contract for everybody. So, who here? Raise your hand if you want to hear an ancient Babylonian contract. I think, all right, you guys are getting it. All right, you got to give the people what they want. Are you ready? Here's how it worked, right? So it wasn't just sort of at the tallest scale. It wasn't just the sort of general idea that you have uh, Shamash legitimating the whole empire. Uh, so I, 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 my pronunciation is going to be off for any Babylonian uh, uh, Syrian scholars out there. Um, but for a house in Durum Eshum belonging to Manatum, the daughter of Abdirah, Hamazirum, the daughter of Abihar, filed claim against Manatum, the daughter of Abdirah, whereupon the judges in the temple of Shamash put Manatum under oath to God. When Manatum swore by Aya, her lady, she, the plaintiff, Hamazirum, renounced her claim. On no account shall Hamazirum ever again file claim for the house, patrimony, possessions, or heritage of Manatum. So there's a, a painful family breakup involving property. Right? This still happens a lot today. Um, wherever it may be, by Shamash and Aya, Marduk and Sumulael, she swore. This is the judgment of the temple of Shamash. And then there's the name of the two judges and the names of two persons and the scribe, a woman as witnesses. They had notaries, guys. They had notaries. Any notaries in the house? All right. Woo, notaries! Good. All right, we got If you need anything notarized. All right. Uh, <laughs> each preceded by the witness side. The point here is that this language of gods then is intimately connected to the idea of governance. And so the, the riddle here that I think we need to consider in, in trying to see how this might apply to the passage is this. 
how can we explain that Peter stood up and shared this with people, and they totally understood it from all of these different cultural contexts. He was speaking their language. By divine power, I think there was some language transition that was happening, but also by divine power, it actually made sense in their contexts too, right? Um, and, and this is what he said, no, people think they're drunk, right? He says, no, it's nine in the morning. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, meaning this, he's indicating present tense. He's saying what is happening here on Pentecost, as everyone is talking here, this is what is happening, and that includes the sun being turned to darkness. Now, they already think he's drunk. If, if I were to stand here in the middle of the church and, like, get my, like, best Pentecostal charismatic thing on and say, like, and right now in this very room, I'm telling you, the sun has been turned to darkness. Can't you see it? The sun is gone. It's dark. The shadows have fallen upon everything, and the night has come, and the day of the Lord has come, and he's coming. He's coming because it's dark in here. Can't you see it? Right? You, you might think I'm more drunk. Right? That would be understandable. Except what he's doing, I think, is speaking spiritually. Now, there were all kinds of uh, people associated these kinds of celestial phenomena with events. One example from the immediate context here, uh, the historian Josephus, who is a Jewish historian who wrote about the period, said that the sun was darkened, there was an eclipse, and it was associated with the death of one of the Herods. Right? So it's, this is eclipse language, and people knew what eclipses meant. It meant that there's some kind of transition in government, that one order of justice is maybe passing away and another one is coming, that there is some kind of social transformation afoot. And I think that what Peter is drawing on here is this deep well to say, we're starting a new government here, but it's totally different because it's not rooted in the guy who can have the biggest army and crush the people the most. Who is it rooted in? You all know, but I'm going to read this again and let you hear this in the context of, here they're promising to start a government, but, but how do they do that? So we're over here in Acts 2. We'll, we'll start with 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to death or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, life, belonging through change, even turning into a corpse. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says, fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of your, our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's also doing a spiritual reading of this text, which when I say spiritual reading, I'm drawing on the very earliest wells of Christian biblical interpretation. Um, Origen, for example, wrote on first principles, and he differentiated between fleshy, soulful, and spiritual reading. And sometimes we denigrate spiritual reading in our context. We think, oh, spiritual just means it's like a story or whatever, and you can say whatever you want. But the responsibility of spiritual reading is you're talking about the underlying realities that structure our world. And you think about this, even today, well, how did we, like, why did scientists conclude that Bell's theorem, why, why did scientists conclude that stuff isn't actually little bits at the deepest level? Well, they used a lot of math. <laughs> They didn't like walk around and go like, well, let's, let's check. Let's like break this into little tiny bits and like let's, let's keep breaking it down and like let's see what we can see. 
right? There's like super, super, super tons of math involved. That's the spiritual reality in the ancient context. Math speaks to the spiritual structure of our universe. And so when I say that he is offering a spiritual reading of this, he's talking about, sure, things that involve physical stuff, right? Jesus really was raised from the dead. And even more than that, he was raised from the dead because the power of life itself, the underlying force of life that's in the universe that makes anything move in the first place, breathed into him and was, was uh, God breathed life back into him. So, and the spirit of this point, too, to speak sort of about what was the point, is David's throne would endure, his, his governance would endure, that there would be a Davidic line anointed and blessed by God to rule the nation justly and fairly. And that dream had been cut off ever since the Babylonian exile. Basically, they had this, uh, there were prophecies and promises from God that this would happen. And then, like, nobody hears about the Davidic line again for in any serious way until now, right? The Herodians were sitting on the throne in Judah. They were actually from Edom. They'd been, there was forced conversions of the Edomites, and then the Romans recruited this Edomite family to sit on the throne of Judah, not, not the legitimate governance. And so when you say, David, you're also challenging Herod's practices of empire and his co-optation by empire. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. They really saw it. This is something we've been emphasizing through the baptisms, that that this witness of, this wasn't just a spiritual reality that we apprehend with our minds. Those are real. They're like math, they're important. But they're saying we didn't experience Jesus in a math-like way. There was some of that. It made sense. It made deep sense of our deepest understandings of things. But we also had physical experiences of him. Spirit and flesh in some way are reunited. Before, therefore, exalted at the right hand of God, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we've been in Matthew, and I think this is so helpful right now, right? So, and you think of Hammurabi too, and you think of the sun god, right? The footstool of a king or a god is the covenant that sits underneath them. And in Matthew, when Jesus says, Basically, um, he, he does this beautiful thing where he basically says, God, don't, don't swear by heaven, because that's God's throne. And don't swear by the earth, by the whole world, because that's God's footstool. And so the idea here, if you want to get the image in your mind, is that this, this covenant on the mount, this love your enemies, uh, give to all who are asking, uh, take the planks out of your own eye, that is what is written in the core of the earth. That's what we're all walking around on. That's the most fundamental reality. And Jesus didn't just preach it, he practiced it. And he practiced it to the point where you start to say, well, come on, dude, that's all nice and idealistic. But when it comes down to the real questions of governance, which is who kills who, and makes everybody preach from the, and sing from their song sheet, Jesus said, no, I'm still going to do that. I'm still going to love my enemies until you crucify me. I'm going to say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And, and the craziest part, get this, is it's gonna work. <laughs> and and, and 2,000 years later, there's gonna be people talking about that saying, yeah, there's all these kings and they've come and gone and there's all these empires and they've come and gone and they've held their various gods and, and there's been plenty of guys who are like, the sun told me to kick your tail and make you do whatever I want. And, and like, whatever. But like, this kingdom is still going. And it's, and it's uh, filled with life wherever we're faithful to that, which is a gift that Jesus gives us to be able to be faithful to that mode of life more and more. One last note on this. I, I could just keep going. Um, I didn't even get to the moon turning to blood which I think really probably has something to do with this uh, wine turning to blood, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I didn't even get to that. <laughs> Next week, maybe, yeah. Um, but uh, so as a closing note, um, living is belonging through change. I think maybe has some fresh resonance for you, that it involves a type of belonging that even goes above the changes of life and death, of personal death, of national death, of whatever difficulties and trials and horrors confront the people of God. God doesn't run away from those things, but God moves in and through them to bring a transformative change and has been doing it and is doing it and will bring it to completion until uh, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, until God is all in all. And so when it says that they'll all be put under his feet, it's playing with this language of empire. That's only playing with it to subvert it, to, to break down the barriers, to break down the walls, and to create a new people with a new kind of unity. Last point. I know I said one more, but I do have just one more. So belonging. There's this sharing of belongings at the end of this, which I think is beautiful. And I would just suggest for your consideration that they didn't all share their belongings. If you read the passages, there's no sense in which somebody says, you, you all have to take all of your belongings and put them in the common purse. Uh, sometimes churches manifest that way, but uh, often they don't. And I think common purse can be a beautiful thing. It can be easily abused. And this discussion, though, it's actually a spirit of if someone's in need, someone in this community is going to do what they need, liquidate whatever assets they need to, to care for the needs that are presenting to us. That's what they were doing. And I think that that freeness with their belongings involved being freed up from thinking that their significance and their status and their, their own belongingness depended on them having a lot of belongings. And that the belonging that God gives us the life that Jesus gives us and invites us into frees us up so that when there is need, we belong and we can invite others to belong instead of being possessed by our belongings. So it's communion time. And I would invite the band up to, yes, and uh, I can move forward. Do you guys want me to move forward or how do you want to manage the space here? Cool, that sounds good. Yes. Get thee behind me, Carl. No, I, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I just meant go up there, please. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, come, Holy Spirit. God, we love your presence. We love your boundary-breaking, communicating, anti-empire that you have founded and invited us into through the death and life of your Son and the impartation of the power of the Holy Spirit. By our power of the Holy Spirit, come on these elements. Invite us to understand how you are truly present here with us. And so it is with joy and sorrow and with hope 
that we remember the feast that Jesus told us to remember. And he, on that night of Passover, 49 days ago, 50 days ago, Jesus took that bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And the same way he took the cup and said, drink this in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood. We practice open communion here. That means anyone who wants to 